You are listening to Radio 1190, KVCU Boulder. My name is James, and I am joined here on the phone with guitarist Glenn Jones. Are you there, Glenn? Yes, I am. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. It's good to hear from you, man. And uh, you are calling in from, isn't it uh, Massachusetts, your home? Well, Massachusetts is my home, but actually in my sister's house in uh, Newtown, Pennsylvania right now. We're having a little family reunion this weekend. Oh, fun. I can't believe that you're working during a family reunion. That's actually quite nice of you, man. Yeah. yeah this should be work, you know? Well, I think it'll be fun. We'll have a we'll have a nice little chat here on uh, Radio 1190. And I'm glad that you're calling in um, because uh, myself, as well as uh, most of the staff and most of our listeners here, um, are really excited about uh, your new record, which is actually coming out on the 18th of March. Isn't that correct? That's right. A uh, week from today, I think that is. Yes, that's correct. Next Friday. It's an album called Fleeting, which I believe, isn't this your uh, sixth recorded full-length um, uh, solo, yes. I, I did a bunch of records with my band Cul-de-Sac before I kind of went off on my own, but yes. That's correct, yeah. And this is much different than uh, Cul-de-Sac, which is your older band. Cul-de-Sac is a much more kind of um, avant-garde, electric, plugged-in, kind of experimental rock band. And uh, you made this shift like a lot of other uh, guitarists had, like Jim O'Rourke or even um, a couple others like um, Jack Rose make that kind of shift for more kind of experimental and avant-garde music into American primitivism. For the listeners at home, American primitivism is a more kind of instrumentally-based style of folk music kind of on the more avant-garde side of things and so uh glenn how did this kind of transition from cul-de-sac to uh american primitivism um come up for you well you mentioned uh you mentioned jack rose and jack was a key figure in this uh in this for me um the last cul-de-sac album that we did our, our last record was called death of the sun and it was an album with a lot of um sampling and electronic sounds on it and that sort of thing, and I found that the 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 way that the guitar worked best in that sort of sea of sounds was using an acoustic guitar, like not to add more electric instruments to something that was already very electronic, mm-hmm. but to bring more acoustic instruments in. So that kind of brought me back to the acoustic guitar, which I hadn't been playing so much over the 20 years or so that Cul-de-Sac existed. Right. And then uh, I played a festival right around the same time as we recorded that album and uh, heard Jack Rose for the first time. And Jack was uh, 18 years younger than me. Um, but as soon as I heard him play, I could hear like the John Fahey influence, which you hear in a number of guitar players. Mm-hmm. John was very influential. Of course. But I also heard the rock I also heard the Robbie Basho influence, and Robbie was a much more obscure and little-known guitarist who recorded on the same label as Fahey, right. and not very many people play in Robbie's style. For one thing, it's it's very difficult. Most and I could hear, I could hear that in Jack's playing, and so, uh, you know, when I heard Jack play, I was like, man, this guy has been, you know eating and breathing and sleeping with the same records that I I grew up on, and I completely understood where he was coming from. And I think for the first time I realized that that what seemed like such a a unique experience in my life was actually something that was going on in in a number of younger players' lives. And I I began to realize that there were were a lot of uh, players who were, you know, growing up with the same records that I had grown up with that were making their own music and being inspired by that stuff in the way that I had. And Mm -hmm. uh, Jack and I immediately became uh, very close friends. I would say Jack was my best friend for the for the very few years that we had uh, we had together. Mm -hmm. But um, 
Jack invited me on his uh, upcoming tour after we got together, and so I toured with Jack for a month, uh, right. just playing acoustic guitar, and that's what kind of got me back into it again. I can't uh, credit Jack enough. I mean, John Fahey was the, probably the biggest influence on me as a guitarist composer. It was really Jack that I that I have to thank for kind of uh, my my so called career, you know, of um, playing acoustic guitar and banjo and 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 touring with that as an instrument, making mm-hmm. the records that I've made, you know. Right, most definitely. And Jack is a fantastic, fantastic musician. For those who don't know, um, Jack uh, and uh, Glenn have a a really neat documentary that I actually highly recommend uh, going and watching. It's these um, kind of pulled footage from not only a studio uh, setting but also from a live setting. And there's also some um, some uh, uh, documentary type footage and interviews in there as well and um, it's a fantastic little documentary and uh, Jack Rose passed away in uh, December of 2009 which is incredibly tragic but he left a huge 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 influence on the whole kind of world of uh, folk music that's happening uh, pretty much still right now from Fahey up until present day with uh, pickers such as Glenn Jones and Daniel Bachman and uh, Riley Walker and um, what's really interesting about all these people is that they pull from both experimental music and kind of um, music from the past, uh, including folk music and blues music and country music. And Glenn, I actually hear a lot of uh, kind of more um, maybe Baroque elements in your style. Do you kind of get this a lot, kind of the more kind of delicate, um, uh, kind of more... um, how should I say, a little bit more kind of um, intricate uh, melodies in your style? It's um, um, a few people have suggested that it's not something I necessarily am looking for. It just happens to be the way that I play and and compose, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But yeah, what you're saying about Jack, I mean, Jack was a complete monster. If you talk to people Mm -hmm. that are kind of doing even more more songwriter stuff now, like uh, Steve Gunn or Ken Nugent, most definitely, you know, all all of them will tell you that that Jack Rose for was their their inspiration to get started. And of course, they all started just playing like solo acoustic guitar. You know, they even if they've moved on to other things. He really cut a wide uh, swat, our Jack, you know. Most definitely. And uh, what's kind of interesting, since we're talking about um, people of the past, I hear on your newest record, uh, Fleeting, it kind of talks about a lot of these people from your past, whether it be Robbie Basho, like we just talked about, who's a major influence on your sound, as well as other musicians, um, such as uh, Michael Chapman, which in the liner notes of Fleeting, there's a really interesting note about uh, this composition, uh, which the composition is called Close to the Ground, where you and Michael Chapman are, uh, this kind of song is based about a night in the Netherlands, isn't that correct? Yeah, I had just finished a three-week tour of Europe, and Michael had just finished a three-week tour of Europe, and it only overlapped on the very last date of the uh, of the tour that we got to see each other. And uh, speaking of Jack, I met Michael through Jack the oh. first time that they toured together in the States, so we were kind of brothers under the skin in that we'd both been pretty close with Jack and spent a lot of time with him on the road. Right. But... Um, Anyway, it was just, it was one of the most amazing nights of my life. I mean, we played, it was a festival, and mm-hmm. Michael and I played, Michael and I played in the afternoon, and uh, we were done at about four, five o'clock, six o'clock, or something like that, and I asked Michael if he had ever seen Yola Tango before, and he right. said, no, no, I've, I've heard good things about him, but I've never seen him, so I said, well, look, I know those guys, so why don't we go over to uh, catch them? They were playing like, you know, they were playing in the, the plum 
nighttime spot in the bigger venue of oh, the wow. festival. So, so I took Michael over there to introduce them, and there were hugs and uh, mm. you know immediate story telling, uh, just storytelling, and and you know sharing, uh, you know my favorite of your albums is this and that and all this stuff. So we were all feeling very good. We went backstage, uh, literally st- on the stage itself, to watch the Ola Tango oh, wow. set, and it was one of the, it was one of the best sets I've ever seen him do. Mm-hmm. Michael was just uh, beside himself. He came over, it's like this is one of the best bands I've ever seen in my life. Why yeah. isn't this audience? Good? And the audience was very enthusiastic, but Michael thought they should be even more enthusiastic. You know? Yeah. So, so by the end of the night, when they got there. Encore, Yola Tango dragged uh, Michael and I on stage to play with them, and we did oh. a, uh, an encore of uh, Daniel Johnston's Speedy Motorcycle. Yeah. And um, it was a great way to end the night. Everybody was feeling good. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they had to, like, you know, shut down the venue and all this stuff, and of we were, course. you know, kind of shoved out the back door, and the door slammed, and we're in the middle of Utrecht, not having the faintest idea where our hotel is or where we are or anything else. And mm-hmm. so getting back getting back to our hotel was an, an adventure to to be remembered. We were out walking around completely lost for a couple of hours before we finally were able to find a bar that was open and were able to call a taxi cab. You know? Oh, my it goodness. Was, uh, yeah, I just wanted to dedicate that song to Michael. It was such a memorable night, and, and you know, Michael is such a memorable guy. I mean, if you ever, if you ever talk to that guy, he'll, he's got stories you wouldn't believe. You know, he's like one of the nine people in the world that actually saw Nick Drake play. Oh, and, my goodness. Uh, just... He knew everybody, Bert Jansch and John yeah. Renborn and all the all the British guitar players, mm-hmm. you know. Oh man, that's that's pretty remarkable. That's a really, really neat story. And what I love about your music, Glenn, is that you can actually kind of hear the kind of um, kind of the atmosphere of these stories uh, within your compositions, especially the ones of Robbie Basho and Michael Chapman. It kind of has these kind of different atmospheres to them that kind of uh, tell these stories. And what's really neat on this new album, Fleeting, is that there's two compositions. The first one being called Cleo Awake and the second one called Cleo Asleep, um, which are dedicated to uh, daughters of one of your uh, close friends. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, just a daughter singular. Um, mm-hmm. Cleo is about, uh, I guess she must be getting close to about two now, but she had been uh, the newborn uh, uh, daughter of some very good friends of mine in Montreal. And actually, you might know one of them. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Miriam Gendron's album called Not So Deep as a Well, which oh. are her settings of uh, Dorothy Parker's poems. It okay. was uh, it came out on the Feeding Tube label, and it made a lot of people's uh, like year-end best uh, albums. It's a really uh, wonderful record, but mm-hmm. I've known the two of them for a very long time. They were among my best friends in, in, well, anywhere, and I always saw them every time I played up in Montreal. And when they had uh, a new daughter, I decided to to write a little banjo piece for her just to, you know, kind of uh, celebrate her arrival on the scene and all that stuff. So, oh, uh, But really yeah, nice. there are two versions on there. There's a, like a regular one, and then there's one played with a banjo mute, mm-hmm. which uh, the conceit of it is that, that we, you know, it should be like a lullaby that's, that is going to not wake her up, you know. Right. So. Most definitely. And uh, doesn't the, uh, the second track, the one with the muted banjo, Cleo Asleep, uh, isn't that featured on kind of a project that you have for uh, folk music that's made for children? No, um, not not that. There was a thing. There was there was another project. You might be confusing me with this. I mentioned the liner notes that uh, one of the pieces was written for um, the 
uh, the music to uh, poems by the uh, artist Kandinsky. Oh, that's and, correct, um, yes. It was used for that. But I think, actually, I know what you're confusing it with. It's, it's just something uh, dopey that I wrote in the liner notes. I said it's part of my series of uh, songs for kiddos and animals. Yes. And actually, I do have like three or four songs that I've written for other uh, children or friends of mine or for <laughs> pets or favorite animals mm-hmm. of theirs or something like that. And they tend to be mostly on banjo, and they uh, are mostly... Kind of vignettes. They're short pieces. They're very, um, they're succinct. They're sort of meant to be kind of palate cleansers between mm-hmm. the heavier guitar tracks on the record, you know? Gotcha. I totally see. Something to kind of uh, lighten it up a little bit, most definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting. And this new album, Fleeting, um, you recorded it in a uh, house, um, which is, uh, I believe, somewhere in, um, isn't, it, isn't it Massachusetts or it's Pennsylvania in which so this was recorded? It's right, right near the Pennsylvania border. It's in mm-hmm. New Jersey on the, uh, uh, the Rancocas Creek, which mm-hmm. is a, it's a, a tributary of the Delaware River. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever I make a record, you know, I have to say that I make my records as much for me as I make them for any kind of uh, imagined audiences. And I'm not, you know, I'm kind of allergic to doing records in the studio. I don't really like studios. I mm-hmm. don't like the antiseptic feel of it. And... I prefer to make a, a record in a place that has some some character of its own already, right. and that is also kind of removed from my usual day-to-day, uh, you know, responsibilities and cares and all that stuff. And in that, you know, my uh, friend Laura Baird, who recorded this album and recorded the previous one, she's been instrumental in kind of finding the places where we're going to make the record, mm-hmm. and then we just kind of move in for a week, you know. And yeah. uh, this this house belonged to a friend of hers, and he said, well, I'm going to be gone for a week, and you can have the run of the place so long, place so long as you uh, feed my cats. Okay. So we took, we took care of his cats. Had the uh, had the house, but I mean, when I say it was on the banks of the creek, I mean it was like five steps from the room that I was oh, sleeping in to, wow. to the river. You know, I would have been wet if I'd taken six steps. <laughs> you know? So, wow, that's really interesting. And can you feel that kind of uh, environment that you're in recording in? Does that kind of influence maybe the mood or uh, kind of the feel of the record whenever you're making it? I think it does. Um, I first had this experience uh, that the second record that I made was recorded on Martha's Vineyard, and when I listen to that record back, I mean, I hear the the performances and the music and all that, but I also feel I feel the time of year that it was made, how the how the the air kind of crackled and the, the way the light kind of fell in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and that became such a um, an important thing to me that I was like, I'd like to replicate this, make my other records in other places, so that the record is really um, not just about getting the perfect take in the studio, but it's about being in a certain place at a certain time with certain people right. and all that. And and I think, you know, to the extent that the record is successful, I think a lot of the credit goes to Laura for providing uh, the kind of environment that I I was able to make the record in. You know, I, if, it's, if it's good, bad, or indifferent, you know, that's down to me, but I feel like she allows me to make um, the best, the best record that I can possibly make at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. That's a really, really uh, kind of neat way to see that your environment kind of influences the ways that um, the record sounds as a whole and the way that uh, it kind of just feels uh, overall. And what I uh, kind of uh, in what makes it, uh, this album so interesting, uh, at least conceptually, is that it feels almost like a concept record where you're kind of talking about or uh, kind of composing these pieces about these people that you that are from your past, as well as people that are in your uh, present life. 
and um, the album itself is called Fleeting. Um, and so does this album for you kind of um, represent a way to kind of deal with fleeting memories or maybe kind of um, preserve these fleeting memories of these peoples or these uh, places that you have been in your life? I would say so, yeah. You may have noticed the album is uh, is dedicated to my late mom, who died uh, just a few months before I started recording this record. Most and definitely. Her, pre- her presence kind of hangs over the uh, over the proceedings, at least in, in my mind. But I wasn't interested in... I, I don't want to hit people over the, the head with uh, misery or grief or something. Mm-hmm. That's not what it's about, and of it's course. not what my mom was about, certainly, you know. But it is an, an important part, and that's why the title is fleeting, that... that you know, things in life, uh, love, friends, pets, mm-hmm. all things, uh, you know, flourish and fade. And it's uh, the natural way of the world, and nothing we can do about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it recognizes that. And I think one of the things that you mentioned, uh, I think, is, is is key for me, and I'm glad that it's something that uh, people like you pick up on, which is that, you know, as I look back on records that meant a lot to me as I was growing up, and it still means a lot to me, mm-hmm. what I'm kind of looking for is not something where the songs just sit there and you sit somewhere else. Yeah. For me, the, the the albums that I love are ones that feel like they're for one, ones that take me somewhere, you know, for want of a better way of putting it, that take me on a voyage. And mm-hmm. so I like to feel that my albums have some kind of... Uh, narrative uh, flow that you start somewhere and you end up somewhere else Most and definitely. that uh, you know so that there's a, I don't know some kind of uh, drama yeah. it's not like I impose that on them it's just a, it's just the way that I write you know right I really really like that that's a really um, kind of neat way to kind of um, pose instrumental music just because instrumental music may kind of uh, on the surface level feel like the focus is on the compositions or uh, what the artist is doing technically but for you it's much more kind of um, has a deeper meaning that may be picked up by some people through lyrics but through you it's kind of done through um, melodies and compositions which is a really kind of fascinating notion to um, base your music off of. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, um, John Fahey, again, was a real kind of role model for me because John did so much with so little, you know. He didn't mm-hmm. have, a, like, a super staggering technique that would make your jaw drop open, but when you went to, to see John live, you were, you were not the same person when you got done. I mean, he really took you through a range of emotions and feelings and all that stuff, and it was amazing that it was all instrumental music. I'm just like, why does it make me feel the way that it feels? But it does, you know, it's in the right hands, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a great respecter of technique. I think, you know, you use the technique you have, and the goal is not to be, uh, at least not for me, to be uh, some kind of a technical wizard, mm-hmm. but to, to speak through the music, you know. Most definitely. And uh, this is kind of just a funny little notion that I might try and pick your brain at uh, right now, is that um, whenever I kind of look over uh, the span of your records from Fleeting to My Garden State and uh, The Wanting, um, visually, since your music, I feel, is definitely very visual, um, all of the albums that you have released as a solo artist thematically kind of have the same uh, theme to them where it has um, either a animal or an inanimate, uh, like an inanimate object, like a uh, four-leaf clover playing a stringed instrument. And um, I just kind of wanted to ask, uh, do these kind of animals playing these instruments on the covers of your records kind of represent you or represent um, kind of the way that the album sounds? I'm really, really curious. Well, 
<laughs> it's a great question. You know, the first record that I did, I, I found like a century-old uh, postcard of a little uh, chicken, a little baby chick, playing mm-hmm. it was an Easter postcard, playing a guitar, and I yeah. think it was from Made in Germany or something like that. And when I chose that for the album cover, it wasn't with the idea of like, okay, this is going to be my theme. Yeah. But... Um, once I did that, I kind of started looking for other postcards and finding some that I really liked. And yeah. so, I don't know, since you have to put something on the record covers, this seemed like, okay, well, this will kind of be my thing, you know. <laughs> but it's also, but it's also have to, I have to say, a bit of a conceit in that um, it, I, I don't want people to think that I, <laughs> how do I want to say this? Uh, I'd, I'd like to give the impression that I don't take myself too seriously. Of so course. there is kind of a, a kitschy or lighthearted quality to the illustrations on the covers, when, of course, in fact, I do take myself very seriously, but <laughs> right. I want to give the impression that I don't, I suppose. you know. I really like it. I think that's uh, very, very neat. For those of you just uh, tuning in, you're uh, listening to an interview with uh, Glenn Jones over the phone right now, calling in from uh, Pennsylvania. Isn't that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And kind of the last thing that we want to touch down upon is that uh, you have a tour coming up. Sadly, there's no dates in Colorado, which is uh, where we're based out of. I know. I haven't been out there. I played, I played out there a bunch of years ago with uh, Sean Smith, but I, it was uh, it was like a sort of a fly-in. It wasn't part of an actual tour. I was gotcha. played for the college out there, but I wish I could get there. I mean, I'm so amazed that you guys have picked this record out. As, I mean, my first reaction was, wow, what an honor. And my second reaction was like, are they out of their minds? Oh, no. Oh. Of course not. Love your stuff. Yeah. American primitivism is something that uh, definitely has uh, a lot of people in Colorado. Um, definitely head over heels. I find John Fahey records in Boulder and Denver more often than I expected. And even Robbie Basho records, which is really, really wow. interesting. That's yeah. cool. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worldwide phenomenon, American primitivism. And uh, this tour, you're starting uh, in Massachusetts and pretty much kind of uh, making your way um, north and then down south and then back up again. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think I get as far west from Massachusetts as like Iowa City. I'm playing a festival mm-hmm. out there. I have three dates in Canada, and then I get down as far as uh, what maybe South Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, Looks somewhere like it. The, the Carolinas anyway. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then I'm back for about a week, and then I have a three week tour in uh, Europe and the UK. Gotcha. And are these all solo tours? Yeah, I'll be. Uh, I generally tour with a couple guitars just so I don't have to do too much retuning on stage because mm-hmm. you know, I play all in open tunings and all that right. and so I usually tour with a couple guitars and a banjo awesome well that sounds really neat and so sometime you'll have to make it out to Colorado we'd love to see you Glenn and, uh, uh, me too most definitely and is there anything you'd like to say before we uh, say goodbye in part ways uh, just uh, thank you James and to, to you know to, to all the staff there at KBCU for um, for for getting the music and for deciding to get behind it and support it and and to your listeners for uh, for listening you know of course not a problem man and uh, the record that he was talking about is fleeting and this is uh, the newest album from Glenn Jones it's off of thrill jockey records and it's gonna be out Friday March 18th which is next Friday and we're gonna be hearing the composition that we were talking about earlier on in the hour and it's called portrait of Basho as a young dragon and this is a track dedicated to uh, Robbie Basho isn't that correct That's right. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. We really appreciate it. And this track is called Portrait of Basho as a Young Dragon off of our CD of the Month for March, Fleeting by Glenn Jones. You are listening to Radio 1190, KVCU, Boulder. (laughs) 